It's all about the hang. Yeah. It's all about the hang. Yes! <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cloud Machine Podcast. My name is Matt Landry, and in the seventh episode, I'm here with Noah Schwartz. Throughout this podcast, we discuss Noah's book, Infinite Span, Life and Music, Teaching Music Business in 2023, and the philosophy of music, amongst other things. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cloud Machine Podcast. For those who are new to this podcast, Cloud Machine is about the music industry and its stakeholders, meaning everyone that works in it, lives it, loves it, and surrounds it. Our goal is to shine a light on roles, people, and realities of the music industry that are often forgotten or taken for granted. Whether you're someone that's dreaming about making a move in the industry, have some songs recorded and don't know what to do with them, or just a listener that wants to learn more, you're at the right place. This week, I have the immense pleasure of welcoming one of my cherished former profs to the podcast. Noah Schwartz, sorry, Noah Schwartz's winding journey through music, media, and design is emblematic of creativity in in the 21st century. As a young guitarist at Berklee College of Music, he experienced musicals, musics, digital upheaval, and witnessed how multifaceted musicians and entrepreneurs were best prepared to thrive in it. From there, Schwartz worked on many sides of the industry, including including artists and bands, record labels, and music technology companies. Today, he's a professor of music and media, translating his experiences and lessons learned for university students and developing the next generation of musicians and creative professional professionals. Noah is also currently working with Art House, a label and management company that encompasses a symbiotic network of emerging and seasoned artists, artists, songwriters, and producers, as well as a host of creative professionals and companies working in music management, marketing, publishing, and live events. These artists includes these artists include Adriana Kane, Serena Ryder, Blair Lee, and many more. His book, Infinite Span: Lives Lives in Music, published in 2020 explores the inner workings of music business and outlines important steps for success from recording songs to growing a social media following. But these steps are only half of the equation. Many sources offer excellent content, but are often missing important context. In Infinite Span Lives in Music, Professor of Media Noah Schwartz explores music by placing it in context, historical, philosophical, technological, personal, and cultural. You can purchase the Kindle or paperback versions of this book online now on Amazon. The link will also be in the description of this podcast down below. So without further ado, <laughs> please welcome No Shorts to the podcast. <laughs> I know. How are you? Thanks, Matt. <laughs> no problem. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I had to take a breath there. Um, but yeah, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah it's uh, listening to that introduction is a little overwhelming. <laughs> good, good. I mean, you deserve all the flowers. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, you were one of the most influential profs uh, when I was at TMU, and just wow. want to say thanks. And we're that's just a, starting the podcast. That's so. embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that's embarrassing. Yeah, um, yeah. I just wanted to start off how we always start off this podcast and asking you your favorite live show experience, right? Um, as a fan, as but, a fan, but also we could we could do two answers, I guess, as a fan and as a music business professional. Okay, that's uh, it's a very difficult question. Yeah, um, you know, I've been to many great live shows. Um, this isn't necessarily emblematic of my taste in music, 
But recently I've been thinking some of the best or one of the best live shows I ever went to was the Deftones live at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City. Okay. When I was at Berkeley, I would see the Deftones a lot because they had a very great like mosh pit type environment where people were very friendly, yet it was like really intense, (laughs) uh, which I really liked. Yeah. And um, there was this moment where I was really close to the stage in the pit and... um, his name i think the lead singer's name is chino okay uh he like gave the mic out to the audience and we all screamed in it (laughs) handed it back to him very interactive it was super interactive and uh, i really like the album uh that they were touring at the time um saturday night wrist which was after white pony which is like their more famous album Right, right right this one was produced by bob ezrin who's a canadian legend yeah uh I really loved that album for whatever reason, even though it's not necessarily considered like their classic. And um, yeah, I, I'd seen them a bunch of times, but that time was really special. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's my all-time favorite show, but it's the one that comes to <laughs> mind. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, you know, post-COVID or whatever, wherever we are now, crowd interaction is something that some people kind of have forgotten. Yeah, um, and it's really important, and yeah. uh, that was a very unique interactive experience. At the time, did you you were did you take the train from Boston yeah. to New York uh, to go see it? At the time, we used to take what was called the Chinatown bus, okay, which was like a ten dollar bus from Boston to New York. Okay, cool. And uh, like a lot of people would do that to go to New York to see shows or yeah, to play yeah. shows or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was always a bus that we would take. I don't know if they still have that bus. I think there were some, like, safety issues. Yeah, Um, with the $10 bus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I I went when I was at Berkeley. I mean, saw a lot of great shows there, but went to New York to see a lot of great shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can think of some others right now as well. One that I'm thinking of is, um, I forget what anniversary it was, but it was a a Steve Reich at... um, Carnegie Hall. Yeah, wow, okay. And uh, <laughs> it was like some celebration of either his birthday or uh, like the 30th or 25th anniversary of his classic piece, Music for 18 Musicians. Okay. And it was an incredible show. Uh, started with Pat Metheny playing uh, Electric Counterpoint, which is one of his amazing pieces. Then Kronos Quartet playing, um, I think it's called Different Trains. Uh, which is another one of his really great pieces, and then ended with a group playing uh, music for 18 musicians. Wow. And uh, actually, Steve Reich's coming to Toronto soon. There you go. And I'm going to go see him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's going to play music for 18 musicians for another anniversary of it. Wow. Okay. That was another good show. Jeez. So there's two. Yeah, there's a bunch. I'm yeah. sure like between just between Berkeley and New York. Yeah. What three hours away? Two hour two? Yeah, something, th- something like that. It depends on the traffic. It also depends on the, the Chinatown bus. Yeah, bus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, a lot of great shows. Cool. But I don't know why that Carnegie Hall. Maybe because I'm going to see Steve Reich. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Of course. But uh, yeah, that was a great show. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, uh, we waited at the like backstage area, and we got to meet Steve Reich for a second. Yeah. Pat Metheny, and we spoke to one of the musicians who played in music for 18 musicians and we asked her like what's it like playing such a difficult piece 
And she's like, you can't even think about it. You just have to kind of hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, ride the dragon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about as a um, a music business professional? And I mean, that's such an encompassing word. Yeah. Um, but for you, what does that mean? And do you have a favorite show working just in the music business, not necessarily as a fan, but maybe yeah, show that you kind of participated in? Um, so again, I, I guess I'm thinking of two now. Yeah. Uh, one of them was many, well, not that many years ago, but I uh, used to roadie stage manage a band uh, of friends that I met at Berkeley. One actually uh, is my longtime friend from Toronto, uh, Sam Chown. He's a musician now, lives in LA. Mm -hmm. But at the time, uh, he lived in Austin uh, with our other friend, Zach Traeger, uh, and they had a band called Zorch, which was a really cool band. Um, and uh, they were considered like the kings of DIY Austin shows. Right. They, uh, and every South by Southwest, they would try to play as many shows as possible. Right. Also, it happens to be like March now, so it's South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of my colleagues at Art House are going there. I'm not going because I'm teaching, and it's not as cool as it used to be. Right. Zorch won't be playing. No, Zorch no longer <laughs> exists <laughs> okay. anymore. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, Zach still lives in Austin. He runs a really cool warehouse space called the Museum of Human Achievement, where it's like a DIY space. Cool. But um, so they used to play as many shows as possible. So it was like three shows a day. <laughs> and I used to go every year and like, you know, roadie for them. Yeah. Um, carry their stuff. And yeah. Like, it's like, please help us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where um, it's really painful at the time because you're going from one show to another show. It's really stressful. But all, like in hindsight, it's incredible memories. Yeah. A lot of great shows there that they booked. Uh you know, people like Grimes really early on played some of their shows. Uh, Andrew WK. Right. Uh, but the one I'm specifically thinking of was at um, a frat house. Okay. In, <laughs> you know, somewhere in Austin. Yeah. In the kitchen. Okay. And, um, <laughs> something like Zorch were really good at audience interaction as well. So they would hand out shakers to people. Right. Okay. And, okay. um, they would really try to, or they would play dodgeball. They would, they would get the audience to play dodgeball while they were playing. Okay. But this, and then they'd have a lot of lights. Uh, so okay. like, you know, really psychedelic. Yeah. Uh, so this one was in the kitchen of a frat house and it was totally packed and it was really dark and the lights were like flashing. And I just remember seeing like all this spilled cereal, like Fruity Loops. <laughs> and it was just such a hardcore Whoa. show. Yeah. And uh, I just have very fond memories of that disgusting kitchen. Wow. And Zorch obviously is not like a uh, bubblegum pop group. No, they're like, um, they're a duo, uh, like synth and drums. Okay, yeah. And uh, I would say it's like, psychedelic noise rock okay yeah yeah um, that fits the that fits the dodgeball vibe in the kitchen yeah for yeah. sure for sure and uh they uh they played for several years they had they have an album uh i don't know i think the it's a self-titled album right it's really good cool but yeah they broke up and yeah yeah sam yeah. lives in la and zach lives still in austin doing diy events but yeah, yeah that show was really good we learned a lot of great shows with them mm -hmm. um but that one is very specific. Memorable. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other one recently, uh, I was in LA with the art house folks, mm -hmm. and um, 
one of the artists that's managed is named Talk, and he's a rising star. Yeah. And he played a show at the Troubadour, which yeah, is a pretty legendary venue. And uh, again, uh, like I did merch for it. It was really fun, you know, going backstage, although there's not really a backstage. At the Troubadour? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just like kind of yeah. there. But it was really awesome to be in such a legendary venue. Yeah, of course. You yeah. know, with an artist who we're working with playing it. It was absolutely packed. Yeah. And uh, it was a really cool experience. Cool. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll get to uh, we'll get to your uh, your position in, at our house uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, uh, I'll ask you about the second question that we ask a lot of people, and and I'm I'm looking forward to your answer here. Um, but it's all based around Erica Badu's quote, yes. which is "Music and music business are two different things." Um, so when you hear that, um, what are your first instincts? Um, I guess I'll start with that. Yeah. What are, what are your first instincts? Music and music business are two different things. Yeah. Uh, well, I love Erica Badu, obviously. Yes. And uh, the live album and Baduism are some of my favorite albums. Yeah. And uh, Pino Palladino is one of my favorite musicians. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, this is a topic that I cover a lot in my book. And yes. even Erica Badu's mentioned in the book because, like, the opening scene of the book is me at Berkeley at a John Mayer masterclass, and uh, he was really inspired by her live album as well. Right. And uh, what one of the things he took away from it, and this I'll get to the question in a second, is that yeah. it's not about being a good musician; it's about being listenable. And uh, so. That actually is one of those things where it's like, if you want to be successful in the business, um, you have to make something people want to listen to. And that's something that musicians struggle with a lot. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we want to make our own creative impulses or act on those impulses, but that's not necessarily what's wanted by a vast majority of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can be incredible musician but if uh, no one listens to you right then no one's going to know who you are so that's where like the business comes in and uh, something I say about this is uh, great music is necessary but not sufficient for success in the music business so yes like music and the music business are different but to Make great music doesn't mean you're going to be successful in the music business. But to be successful in the music business, you do need great music. There you go. And uh, that's like a little confusing because some people would argue, oh, you know, artists get famous and they don't make great music. Well, it's like, well, people want to listen to it. So if people want to listen to it, then by many estimations, it is great music. Yeah. And even if, like, one person doesn't think it's great, if it has a wide listenership, like, it kind of is. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not really subjective at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, No, I get that. How has your perception of, of just what you're talking about right now changed from, let's say, when you were at Berkeley, let's say, and compared to now as a music business prof, but also an active professional in, in the scene? Yeah. Um thing about Berkeley in general is 
it can be very competitive. Inter- at least when I went, it's quite different now. Yeah. I hear. Um, it can be pretty competitive in terms of like instrumental proficiency, like right, how right, right, good right. you are on your instrument. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what like they're testing for. And yeah, yeah, of course. At least when I went there, there was something called ensemble rankings or ratings. Okay. And it's like you know the better you were on your instrument, the higher your ensemble rating, like the cooler bands you could play with. Yeah, yeah. It's similar at Humber as well. They 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 still have that sort of thing where they like rank. And then you you play either in like this band or that band, yeah. and yeah, yeah they, they exactly, they, yeah. But that really doesn't matter in terms of like being successful in the music business. Mm-hmm. What matters is like making music people want to listen to, and right. you don't really have to um, be that good at an instrument to do that. That was one of the things John Mayer talked about, where like initially he wanted to be the best guitar player ever. But then he realized that he had to write songs people want to listen to. Now, maybe ironically, in doing that, he became considered one of the greatest guitar players of his generation. Yeah. But that wasn't his goal anymore. His goal was to, like, you know, write your body as a wonderland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, at, at Berkeley, it can get kind of confusing, even though they, like, unlike some other music schools, like, there was a strong business focus, and I yeah. took a lot of great business classes. Uh, there's still uh, an emphasis put on how good you are on your instrument. But in in my experience, like, you know, that's important, but that's really not that important in terms of making music um, that will be widely listened to and become successful. Now, for someone like you, who's like, a, you know, like a drummer, like who plays with bands, it is important. Yeah. yeah. So like there are many cases where, being really good at your instrument still matters. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Although I'm not putting, like, Matt Landry music out on Spotify yet. No. (laughs) And when you do, it's not about, like, your, you know, chops necessarily. No, 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 not at all, actually, yeah. Um, It's about making something that's, like, creative and, like, cohesive. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I guess what I'm just saying is at Berkeley, I may have been a little too focused on being good at guitar and not focused enough on what it actually means to be successful in music in life and yes in the music okay. business. yeah yeah well w- often what we talk about here on the podcast and just what i talk about with colleagues is that like 90 percent of getting on the road on tour is who you are as a person yeah like i've always said that it's like 10 percent chops and skills and like if you can hang uh with a band or an artist or even just like a group of people with uh for three weeks without kind of yeah, uh, alienating everyone. Yeah, or just like yeah, wanting to uh, kill them. I guess um, totally is 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 the other ninety percent. Yeah. So it's like I I completely agree that it does take skill, but at a certain point, it's not at all because of that. That's right. Um, now, how is I guess coming out of Berkeley? How did that that perception change about the music industry? And I know that's sort of been like your journey throughout mm-hmm. all of these years, but um, now what does that look like for you? Um, it's a big question. Yeah. Coming out of Berkeley, and I think this happens to a lot of people who go to music school, I realized like, oh, I'm not, I went, I was a guitar player. Like I'm a guitar player. I'm not very good at it, (laughs) you know? Right. And, uh, I need to, uh, have some other skills. And I realized that at Berkeley, I thought I was going to be a music lawyer. Uh, I started working with a lawyer at Berkeley. I was interning. 
um, for her at her law firm, and it was a music law firm, and I, I saw firsthand that uh, musicians and all sorts of different people in the creative industries need uh, representation. Yeah. And uh, often don't know their rights, and when they get any opportunity, often sign away uh, their, their intellectual property. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I thought that's what I was going to do, but I really didn't want to like go directly to law school. Yeah. Um, which is how I ended up doing my masters, and that's how I ended up teaching. Right. And that was the other thing. Like, I didn't want to be a guitar teacher. Right. But. Um, I knew I liked teaching, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you know going to uh, my masters at Ryerson now TMU. Yes, um, I started to teach digital media classes and then like music stuff. Right, um, and then that was the other thing. Like at Berkeley, especially near the end, I started to see how important technology was in terms of music and creativity in general. Right. And that it was quite interdisciplinary and intersectional mm-hmm. um, in the sense that uh, film, um, social media, music, th- they were all like on the Internet yeah, yeah, yeah. intersecting. Yeah. And uh, it was really important to have an understanding of digital media technology in general, the Internet and, uh, you know, it's only become, I think, more important now for better and for worse. Yes, yeah. Um, So I I kind of had a sense that um, that was going to be important. And then doing my master's in media production and starting to teach digital media topics, uh, I realized, like, oh, this is a fairly good fit for me. Yeah. Because um, I love exploring these things and thinking about these things and... uh, Unlike maybe some others, I viewed it as a natural extension of making music yeah. and being involved in music. Right. And, um, yeah, so, like, the the nature of digital media and, uh, like, making music to me just seemed like a natural fit. Right. And just to put it in perspective, when did you graduate from Berkeley? Um, like, 09. Okay. Okay. So there was still some technology that was kind of... Um, oh yeah, a- active of course, but but from '09 to now, there's been such oh, a yeah. such a kind of um, how do I even say that? Just like a development of tech, and especially with music. Yeah, I, I, you, yeah. you've been going through that. Yeah, it's your cra- whole it's crazy. career. Yeah, like um, when I was at Berkeley, uh, MySpace was the thing. Right, and, right, right. Uh, right. Facebook just started. Yeah, and then um, people were leaving MySpace to go to Facebook pages for their bands. Right. And then, you know, Facebook changed the algorithm. People were very upset. And then I guess they went to mm, Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. It wasn't, like, immediately. Like, I definitely remember people switching from MySpace to Facebook. I'm sure, yeah. But uh, then there was some time. And, you know, just, like, fast forward to now, it's TikTok. Yeah. And like everything's about TikTok. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of scary in a sense that I don't see the next one. Like what's after TikTok? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm always trying to tell, you know, students or emerging artists to think about the next platform. Yeah, yeah. um, Because my experience of this, and I guess it's not necessarily like the truth, but um, there's always going to be another platform. 
but I don't see it right now. No, me neither. I've been thinking about it as well. And I don't know if it was obvious when Instagram was like king about where it was going. Cause I wouldn't have thought like that videos were going to come back because when TikTok started, I was like, Oh, this is sort of like a longer vine yeah. type situation. So I, I, I wasn't expecting video to come back as big as it did. Um, but yeah, I, I also have a hard time right now. Like what is the next thing? Is it, is it VR? I don't think so. Like, I, I don't know if it's, if I don't know if it's going there. Um, I don't, also don't know what meta is up to as well in yeah. regards to all that stuff. No, I, um, I mean, they own Instagram. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, are they the next ones to develop that app or I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's a little concerning that it's like unclear or there's no like viable next platforms. Right. Even with like everything that's happened with Twitter recently, like with the Elon Musk acquisition. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, people wanted to get off of it, yeah. but they didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, there's like Mastodon, Yeah, but I, I don't see that as active as right. Twitter. Yeah. There was also Clubhouse for a bit. Yeah, Clubhouse was big for a while. Yeah. I thought Clubhouse was going to be a thing. Yeah, I agree. But it, it didn't last. No. Yeah, no, big questions there. Um, but so I guess to come back to, to your post, post-grad after Berkeley, you wanted to come back to Canada, right? Um, because is this is this where you're you were you born? Yeah. Your family's here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm Canadian, so it's not so easy to stay in the states. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have any like real idea of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And kind of, if you want to stay in the states, you kind of have to have some sense of it. Right. Uh, even if you're playing in a band, like okay, I'm gonna play in this band. But if you're not in the band, uh, so I came back here. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Right. Right. Um, and that's, you know, kind of how I ended up in my master's program. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause I guess I started that in 2011. Okay. And I graduated like Berkeley at the end of 2009. Right. So yeah, I waited like a year. I often right. tell, um, undergrads don't go directly into a master's program yeah, yeah unless you really know you want to yeah because it's good to get some work experience um you, you did the master's program and then you started teaching almost right away yeah um and was that was that something was that natural for you like was it always something that you thought about doing or was it sort of like um it, it was there and then yeah it wasn't something i thought about doing mm-hmm. uh like when i was at berkeley for instance right i knew that i was good at teaching uh I knew that uh, I was good at, like, speaking. Um, And I knew that I was more comfortable doing that than being on stage with a guitar. Okay, right. But I didn't really know what that meant. Right, right, right. You know, because even, like, when I was working at the law firm, it was like, oh, I can do, like, I can deal with clients or I can Mm -hmm. talk to people. And I'm not as uncomfortable as when I was on stage with guitar. Right. I was never fully comfortable playing on stage with a guitar, which was always kind of weird to me. Yeah. yeah. It was like my thing. Yeah. Right. Um, Did Berkeley have a big effect on that? Do you think? Yeah. Because I could see how people, how comfortable people were with their instruments. Okay. Right. It was a more of a comparison thing. Yeah. Right. Right. right, Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing about Berkeley. I guess any music school is you're constantly comparing yourself to others for good and for bad. Yeah. Uh, For good in the sense where at least at Berkeley, you're getting a sense of like what it is like in terms of the best. Right. And uh, I realized that, like, you know, a lot of people are more comfortable behind their instrument than they are speaking. 
And uh, right. that wasn't Yeah, me. it's a reality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I realized, like, oh, I need to do something where I'm, like, speaking. Right, right. And, um, <laughs> and like, something creative and engaging with, like, people, um, but that's not behind a guitar. Right. Um, so I didn't exactly know what that meant. I thought, like, maybe that was law. Uh, but then I realized, like, oh, teaching works well because I had a lot of performance skills. Right. And a lot of practice. Right. Like, performing in front of an audience. And that's what teaching kind of is. Yeah. And uh, also, like, you know, the topics I were teaching uh, can be taught, you know, in a way that's interesting to the audience. Yeah, yeah. Because it's digital media, it's technology, it's music. So I realized, like, oh, this is probably a good fit for me. Yeah, yeah. Because um, all of those, like, performance skills and the ability to improvise and the ability to, like, you know, um, kind of read the audience and figure out the proper pace yeah, of yeah, yeah. whatever information I'm presenting uh, worked really well. Yeah. So, and that's something I talk about a lot in terms of musicians transferring to other careers and disciplines. Yes, yeah. Uh, improvisation, you know, practice, performance, those skills span so many different um, potential jobs and disciplines. So for me, performance, improvisation, and uh, audience interaction uh, worked really well. Uh, like all those skills transferred right over to teaching. Right. Do you, why do you think it's important, especially now in 2023 in this landscape, um, why do you think it's important to be teaching musical business um, yeah, or music well, business? That's right? a good question. Um, the way I, there are some fundamentals that are good to know, but the way yeah. I think of it is a lot of people have a lot of, and this is kind of the point of the, this podcast, right? They have a lot of misconceptions about what it actually means to work in the music industry. Um, there's a lot of um, focus on the performer or the right. star, yeah, yeah, and not a lot of information about everything that goes into getting that star on the stage or getting a recording made. Yeah. There is a whole industry, and then beyond that, a whole creative industry that goes, you know, into like uh, film and television, yeah. marketing, commercials, video games. Yeah, so. A lot of what I think about teaching music business is it's not just about the business of music. It's about, like, finding um, your place in a creative ecosystem. Right. Which is often, many parts of it are underexplored. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can teach about recording contracts and, uh, you know, booking shows and stuff. And that's all good. Yeah. But it's also about discussing all the different roles that exist, all the different types of companies that exist, um, especially, and this is why I like TMU and why I like Toronto. There's a huge creative ecosystem here. Yeah, yeah, there's, of course. There's many jobs. There's many possibilities and opportunities, mm -hmm. but uh, especially undergrads, because they're pretty, you know, undergrads are pretty young, have little exposure to yeah. the full breadth of the music, industry and then the wider creative industries. Yeah, of course. I think that was one of the, the, the bigger things that I realized in, in my undergrad as in um, it was all it was all great what we what we were taught and stuff, but I also realized that there are so many roles yeah. and so many people um, kind of 
interacting to 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 make I don't know this is the bad examples, but Drake or no Drake <laughs> or or Justin Bieber. Drake's a or, great example. Yeah, because I always say for Drake, there's a thousand, two thousand creative professionals right. working to support that business. Yeah, and nobody knows. Yeah, no one knows, yeah. and maybe you might know like a few of them. Yeah, exactly. For yeah. every one of those people. There's hundreds of people. Yes, exactly. And I mean, Drake's a really good example because his uh, like business empire spans a bunch of different things, like including, of you know, like fashion and clothing, restaurants. Uh, yeah, ex- ex- now, yeah, bars um, and stuff too. Venues, yeah, venues, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, with history and stuff. No, I, I totally, I totally agree. I think that was like one of the more. Um, uh, I guess. It was one of the awakenings that I got, I guess, out of the industry. I always knew that it was, it was, a, there were so many people, but I think the, the goal of this podcast is also to shine light on those people that aren't necessarily always in the spotlight. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, and, and it's, it, it's great. Um, now, to go into your book, mm-hmm. Infinite Span, Lives of Music, I have its bio on Amazon, mm-hmm. so I'm, and I'm going to read it okay. quickly. Um, but please let me know if if uh, if it m- misses the mark here. And I also don't know if you wrote this yourself, but we'll was, get there. It was either Cormac or myself. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So there are many how-to books that explore the inner workings of the music business and outline important steps for success, from recording songs to growing a social media following. But these steps are only half of the equation. Many sources offer excellent content, but are often missing important context. In Infinite Span, Lives in, Lives in Music, professor of media Noah Schwartz, explores music by placing it in context, historical, philosophical, technological, personal, and cultural. Through these explorations, you will learn how music as an art and industry got to where it is today, where it may be going, and how you can find your place. Noah acts as a guide on a journey of musical, technological, and cultural innovation, sharing stories of artists and visionaries throughout history, crossing genres from classical music to jazz, hip-hop, and vaporwave. It's, a, it's, it's the synth- synthesis of history with self-reflection and important personal questions to help you discover what you really want and how to find it. This is The Infinite Span, a never-ending journey to make music your life and to make your life music. You like jazz? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that description is kind of like the answer to the question you asked me, like, why do you think you should teach music business or right. whatever? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. It spans a lot of different things as well because, and in my notes here, it's music, technology, cultural. Yeah culture and history yeah there's so many different things because music is not necessarily just the notes on the page of course no it's definitely not yeah yeah (laughs) definitely not there you go um i guess my first question is for you is why did you want to write this book um i guess the book itself so i've been was teaching for at least five or six years yeah and a lot of the stuff in the book are the more esoteric lessons that kept on coming up. Right. Um, you know, we already mentioned one based on the Erica Badu quote, like great music is necessary, but not sufficient for success in the music industry. Right. That is not obvious to many young musicians. They think if they make a great song or great album, they're going to be successful. Well, right. We know that's not true. Um, uh, 
you know, one thing in there further to that is I tell a few stories uh, from music history to illustrate that point. One of my favorite is uh, Bach, you know, considered maybe the gold standard of composers. Right. Um, standardized um, Western music theory. But he wasn't very successful in his life. And in fact, there were two other composers, Handel and Telemann, who were way more successful. They were better business people. Handel was a rock star across Europe, working for all the kings and royalty uh, from all different European countries, where Bach was stuck teaching music in a church. Right. Because uh, he wasn't as good of a business person. Uh, Handel was actually a lawyer as well. <laughs> He was like a mover and shaker. Yeah, is that why you wanted to be a lawyer? <laughs> I don't know if I knew this story, <laughs> but um, I I think it does go to show that like the business and the networking skills have always been essential, right? Even in Bach's time. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know now in retrospect, Bach is remembered, but in his life it wasn't like that, right? Um, and there's like a lot of stories like that. Um, you know, another one I tell is about Charlie Parker, who's considered, you know, maybe the greatest saxophone player in jazz, whatever. He's, you know, the founder of bebop. Yeah. But um, for a lot of his, or for a large part of his, like, active life, um, he ha was banned by the Musicians Union from recording. Right. And there was also, like, a shortage of vinyl due to the war. World War II, uh, so he didn't get to record as much as we may have, like, you know, today, where right. we can just record on a phone or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it just goes to show that, like, you know, access and your ability to, um, yeah, like, access recording equipment or access the people who can give you a platform is always been important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's uh, unfortunate for a lot of, like, musicians who kind of want to just focus on their art as opposed to focus on building a network. Right. Um, but, yeah, you've got to do that. Whether yeah. it's, you know, in, uh, like, Euro like, Europe in the 14th or 15th century or, you know, in the 40s. Or now. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to definitely think about that of how sort of like history kind of repeats itself. Yeah. And it's always it's always been sort of like that reality of uh, you don't necessarily like that great music like you've been talking about. That great music doesn't necessarily mean success. And and a great again, two great examples of that. Um, why? I guess there's a lot of different ways that you could have divided out your book. Um but why music, technology, culture, and history? Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak individually about those different things and sort of what you what you kind of talk about in your book uh, or wrote about, rather. Um, but yeah, why why divide them in, in four like that? Well, I don't know. I don't think I divided them in four. Rather, I think I've broken out something that I considered like holistic right. into different aspects. Right, so right. there's always the technological aspect. There's always the cultural aspect. There's always a, like historical precedent. Right. And then there's always some sort of artistic impulse. Totally. Um, and those can be broken out and explored um, singularly. Yeah. But they're always all present. 
Yes. And they're all together, kind of like, you know, in a thread or... Right, 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 right. Uh, You're always thinking about those four things when... Yeah. Analyzing or telling a story exactly. in that context. Exactly. Yes. And then, like, in, in terms of any musical context, all right. of those things are present. Yes. Um, and uh, you can't escape them. Like, in terms of technology, the technology dictates so much about music. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is kind of... Uh, like Marshall McLuhan yeah, t- yeah, of course. <laughs> type stuff <laughs> yeah. where he said, uh, you know, the medium is the message, which can be interpreted to saying like the technology of the day has a big impact on the content of the creative endeavor, in yeah. this case, music. Sure. And, you know, some basic ways to think about that are at the beginning of recording, you could only have a three minute you know, recording sessions, so the songs were three minutes. Right. Nowadays, with TikTok, it's making a huge impact on how people make music and what the songs sound like and how the songs are marketed. Um, how the, like, culture interprets the music at the time is always important, too. Um, yeah. Music needs to be cultural. Like, it needs to be a part of some bigger social and... Uh, you know, cultural movement. And yeah. if it isn't, it generally is not going to resonate with a yeah. um, lot of people. Right. And I mean, there can be niche cultures. That's great and that's important and that's how new th- sounds come. Right. But uh, there's always a cultural aspect uh, that's being reflected in music that is remembered mm-hmm. and that is successful. And um, there's always historical precedent. There's always something that came before yeah, and, like it's impor- important to acknowledge that, especially, you know, in terms of a lot of Western music, like a lot of it is black music. Yeah, of course. And yeah. Uh, yeah. It, that for many years, like, you know, wasn't necessarily acknowledged. Uh, it's been more acknowledged now. Um, but like there's a whole history there that's important to understand in terms of like what music you're making and like how it was influenced. And nowadays, uh especially like in 2023 the popular music of the day is really global um yeah so, you know k-pop is really big yeah uh, latin american music is really big and it's really big on the western charts right and uh, we often are missing a lot of like the history about how these forms came to be right and uh how like globalization has led to this very interesting Often, and I, I'm noticing this a lot in 2023, multilingual music. So, like, I, I hear a lot of, uh, you know, songs, like K-pop songs that are in English and Korean. I hear a lot of, uh, like, Latin American songs that are in Spanish and English. Yeah, yeah, of course. Or, like, the chorus is in, exactly. is in uh, let's say, uh, Spanish, and then the verses are in English or stuff like that. Exactly. Oh, I agree. Like, even, like, 10 years ago, I mean, Drake was deemed, like, the, the artist of the decade or whatever, but for a long time, it was North American, like, I guess, Western music that was deemed as global pop music. That's but right. now we're having a lot of multilingual and a lot of different, um, I guess, individual nationalities and their culture and their music also dominating the charts in the western uh, i'm thinking um i'm thinking about uh, bad bunny specifically yeah bad bunny yeah bts bts like the, yeah. the biggest groups arguably of the last like t- two or three years yeah um, it, exactly and it's it's massive it's 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 beyond comprehensible for me yeah um not necessarily that i don't know it, it's not that it's not comprehensible it's just 
it's very active and it's big. That's it's huge. Right. And there's a lot of like historical precedent to yes, understand it and unwrap. And, yeah. you know, that goes into the economics of it, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love it. Like, I really like the <laughs> globalization of music. Yeah. You know, there's like a dark side to it, too. Of sure. Like, you know, issues with globalization. Sure. Um, and it's, it's changed. But this is something that I view as positive. You could argue about it. Like the mm. the like, what does it mean to be like Western and right. like that is changing and expanding to be, you know, include um, many different countries besides North America and, you know, Western Europe. Right. And, you know, some people view that in a negative way. Some people view that in a very positive way. Right. Um, so that's all there to explore. Yeah, yeah. And within that, I think there's a lot of opportunity for like jobs and careers. Because especially, you know, like in Toronto, there's a huge uh, Korean population. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, K-pop is, is it right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, where are the intersections? Where are the opportunities? Yeah. I think, I think not a lot of people are educated on like those like darker kind of like realities of, of it all. But um, I think there just needs to be more work. Yeah. And that's in like, that, in that, in that sphere. And that's like the, like historical and, you know, cultural aspects of it. Um, you know, there's in the, there's the music industry is pretty dark. Yeah, no. It, it has like, <laughs> it, you know, and even in the like any contract, even if it's a great contract, it's going to talk about the exploitation of rights, right? Uh, you know, like the intellectual property, the yeah. the songs, and that can be fine, but it can also be like more traditional exploitation in terms of like a bad thing, uh, taking rights away from artists, and you know, giving them to corporations or yeah. Uh, other people who may not have initially like created that art yeah yeah totally yeah it's an exchange i guess but the exchange is not always uh two-sided i guess no and like (laughs) you know there's there's uh like systems of power yeah and like the artists are often the least powerful but are providing the most value yeah of course yeah and the most interaction and well at the end of the day it's all interaction that especially now streaming platforms are deemed quantifiable success yeah i mean Um, mean, drake made a good point about that recently where like he got some spotify record like most streamed or something like that and he said i i deserve a lebron size check for this and i think you know even though drake's really wealthy yeah the point is like he doesn't necessarily like benefit from spotify's growth Besides, right. like, the regular royalty payments. Right, or achievements. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't get, like, a Spotify sponsorship. Yeah, or he doesn't get, like, um, equity in Spotify. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, interesting, 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 yeah. You know, like, not to say that he hasn't made a lot of money off streaming compared yeah. to other artists, because yeah. he definitely has. But, like, many people are probably paying for Spotify for Drake. Right, yeah. It's, like, it's sort of like, um, how... Uh, so sports analogy, random. I've, I don't know if I've done a sports analogy yet on this podcast, but when Mario Lemieux retired, he uh, he the Penguins, the Pittsburgh Penguins, still owed him some money from a bunch of different contracts. He retired early, um, and he came back uh, later uh, post post retirement to be a player. But that money that that the organization owed him uh, actually turned into stock. Yeah, uh, that's and he, exactly it. And he became an owner. An right? owner. Yeah. Um, Interesting in that Drake uh, wants to uh, LeBron size check yeah. in the sense that like where where do artists get 
that ownership back? That's right. And when are they, when are artists like Drake not taken advantage of still? That's you know, right. like they're the biggest artists on the planet and it's not just Drake, but they're still um, experiencing this lack of balance and this lack of uh, ownership. I That's guess, right. In, in, in their music. And it's, it's sort of wild to, to think about it. And I mean, like Drake, just, you know, we're in Toronto, like, you always <laughs> think about Drake. Yeah. Um, he owns a lot of things. Yeah, like, of he's course. smart about it, yeah, which yeah, yeah. just goes to show, like, why he'd be thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Because he's provided a lot of value to Spotify. In your book, uh, and I have, I just have a note, I'm looking back at my notes here. Um, I, I noted, Errors of Music History, Philosophy of Music, Cognitive versus Music Dissonance. Oh, yes. Um, did you want to talk about one of those things? I guess sure. Specific. Well, specifically, I know. I know the one that you 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 really I reacted like, on. I is, like dissonance. Yeah, c- cognitive versus <laughs> music dissonance. Yeah. Um. Did do you want to speak to what that is first? Yeah. Uh, and then and then we could talk about that. Um. So maybe you can help me a little bit. You know, I teaching music like actual music theory and stuff. Sometimes I'm like, oh man, how do you describe consonance versus dissonance? Right. Um. You know, consonants are when you're playing two notes together and they sound very good. Right. (laughs) And good is not really the right word to use. Right. Because dissonance is when you play two notes together and they sound less good. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Yet, uh, the reality of making music is that if something's too consonant and everything sounds very similar and harmonious together... Uh, it's boring. Right. And if it's very dissonant, it can sound very chaotic and, um, you know, maybe you might consider it painful or noisy. Right. Uh, But the best music balances consonance and dissonance uh, to create appropriate amount of tension and release. Right. And that tension and release is what makes music enjoyable. So dissonance isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it can be, if it's too much, can sound, you know, um, it can sound bad. Uh, But consonants, if there's too much, can sound boring. So in your book, you you speak about this. Yeah. So what I talk about, and if you look at, like, theoretically the history of music, it's the addition of increasing dissonance. Right. So, like, the first intervals were, like, octaves and, like, perfect fifths, which are very consonant intervals. Mm -hmm. And then... Eventually, uh, thirds came in, which are slightly more dissonant. Now, when we hear thirds, we don't necessarily consider them as dissonant right. because they're the basis of diatonic harmony, yeah. which is like the harmony that defines Western music and yes. pop music. Um, but then there's, you know, there's many other intervals, too. And some intervals, like a uh, major seventh, for instance can sound very dissonant, right. but if you put it in the proper context, like on top of a major triad, it creates a major seventh chord, yes. which sounds very consonant. Right. And that major seventh is leading back to the root note, right. which sounds great. And that's the thing about dissonance. Uh, it needs to be managed and balanced, leading back to consonants, and that consonance needs to go back to dissonance. Um and, like, the history of music has been an increasing dissonance. Uh, right. 
So when you listen to like, you know, rock in the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like our parents era or like, I don't even know how old we are anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but in the 60s, like people thought rock music was very dissonant. Right. When we listen to it now, it sounds quite constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we listen to hyper pop now or like forms of EDM yeah. and glitch, yeah, yeah. it can sound fairly dissonant. Yes. In 20 years, though, it's going to be kind of consonant. It's the same with like, you know, when metal first came out, when Black Sabbath first came out, like a song like Paranoid or something, sounded very dissonant. We right. listen to it now, it sounds like a pop song, kind right. of. Yeah. Um, so there's always more and more dissonance coming, and culturally and, like, personally, cognitively, at first we may think it sounds... Um, difficult to understand or noisy right. but eventually it becomes just normal music uh normal sounds something that is just a part of our musical vocabulary right so i make the comparison of musical dissonance to cognitive dissonance right uh you know especially with technology and increasing um, different like crises in the world, whether it's like climate change or uh, a big one is misinformation or like, right. you know, social media um, disinformation. It can be quite confusing to understand uh, like what's going on in the world. It's very noisy, right. it's very dissonant. Yet we know that that's always been the case. Uh, when television came out, people felt a similar way. Now, it's not as much as now, but that's the thing. Like, it's right. always more. And it seems hard to manage. But if we look at the history of music, we can see that there's always been increasing dissonance. If we look at the history of uh, society, there's always been new technology, yeah. more and more information available, creating a m greater cognitive dissonance, greater confusion. Uh, and it's our job to manage that and recognize that even though it's more dissonant than ever, this isn't new. It's always been this way, and there's just going to get more and more noisy, more and more dissonant. And in 20 years, we'll look well, back now, and we'll be like, wow, wasn't that simple? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of like it, if the dissonance is is a current... is It's always dissonant in the sense that... That's right. When we look back, it'll always feel more comfortable or uh, more simple than it was when we were in the in the in that present moment. That's it's right. interesting to to make that comparison in in just cognitive dissonance versus musical dissonance because we were seeing that pattern um, in that industry, but also in life. Where do you think it's going next? I remember so, and just before before we get into that, I remember hearing like a hundred gecks for the first time, being like, "What the heck is this?" Right? Or like just like that sort of music and that sort of like. Um, I don't even know how well hyper pop is a good word for it, but um, just like challenging that kind of stereotypical EDM, I guess, yeah. that we had, but to push it a little bit more further. Um, where do you think it's going next? Well, <laughs> like mu music will continue to get more and more dissonant in all sorts of yep. ways, whether it's like the tone color, uh, the harmony. Sometimes harmony becomes more simple, and that's a form of dissonance right. too. And yeah. like other things, whether it's rhythm, or, uh, you know, f like song forms or lyrics. Uh, you know, you could even consider the multilingual songs to be like a form of dissonance now because now people aren't just listening in English. Like, yeah, yeah. There's Interesting. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, yeah. You know, and I mean, it can to me, it sounds really good. 
Right. But, but it's challenging, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't necessarily understand, especially in, like, very lyrical genres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course. But, uh, oh, man. Yeah, you know what? I, I think the thing is to understand that there's always going to be, like, a musical dissonance, a cognitive dissonance, and we have to balance it and manage it. And if we think about music, uh, managing tension and release like consonance and dissonance is the job of the musician, the composer. Right. So managing uh, an increasing like cognitive load is the job of a critical thinker or just like people in society. Yeah. And artists. Yeah. Yeah. And the artists. And that's right. And that's the other thing to, that's a really good point. Uh, It's increasing. And this brings it back to the music business. It's increasingly, uh, multifaceted and confusing in terms of how do you become successful as a creative individual or musician. Uh, there's no one path. Right. In fact, there's more paths than ever. Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, that's something to recognize, which is both overwhelming and confusing, but also can be an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, that's uh, <laughs> a lot to think about. But you you can you read all about it um, in Noah's Infinite Span: Lives of Music um, to get on Amazon now, um, ebook or paperback copy. Going through that into just these very general questions that I have of the music industry. Okay. Um, <laughs> So I guess you were a prof for a couple of different classes in, in, in university. Yeah. And um, I guess I wanted to talk t- about what just people that aren't in the music industry need to know about the music industry because it can seem very daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess your first instincts when I say that, what do people have to know? Or not have to know, but what they should know about the music industry if there's if there's a couple things. Um, just going into it um another big question yeah i know i guess one important thing is the music industry is about and i mean you tell me if you agree Mm -hmm. uh hanging it's all about the hang yeah it's all about the hang yes (laughs) yeah if you can't hang with people then um you're gonna have a problem yeah yeah uh music's social yeah. Even though it's very personal, that's something mm-hmm. I, I try to explore in the book, how personal we feel music. Right. But yeah. like, it's a social art form. Right. And culturally, uh, historically as well, right? So you're, it's all about that. And now with technology, exactly. you're also going, going global. It, so hitting all those four things are no. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So I think that if you want to be in the music industry, mm-hmm. you have to enjoy hanging. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's something I realized for myself, like, ooh, like, I don't like hanging uh, for as long as other people do. Right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, that puts me at a disadvantage. Right. Because some people just love, like, and the uh, pandemic changed this a little bit. But yes. I used to say, you know, go to clubs, go to bars, go to venues, either play or hang. Yeah. And that's how you create a network. That's how you join a scene. Mm-hmm. That's how you become aware of the culture and then like understand how to m- perhaps make something or contribute to something that's culturally relevant. Totally. Now this is happening online too now. Yeah. Which is creates cognitive dissonance because hanging is kind of different thing online. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We're also getting like subreddits and Discord, yeah. which is also creating like communities exactly. as well, which is, the communities aren't necessarily physical and at a club anymore. Um, exactly. Discord especially. Like, there's all sorts of stuff going on there that I don't understand. Yeah, yeah me neither. Reddit yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the first thing I would say if you want to be in the music industry, right. you have to hang in, in music. Right, right, right. What about artists? What do they in, in 2023? And I guess this this goes a little bit to the to the advancement of tech, yeah. which is also going into my couple other questions. Um, but what do artists now need to look out for uh, in 2023? And I guess social media is sort oh, yeah. of like a, a very obvious kind of one. But are there any other things that need to artists need to look out for now? Okay. In terms of emerging artists, like, become, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not Drake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pre pandemic, I would always say if you want to be a successful artist, you have to play live. Like, right. period. Um, now the pandemic changed that a little bit, although I think it's reverting and people like live music is killing it right now. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would go back to that, but now. Social media is more important than ever. I guess every year we say that. Yeah. And like, if you want to be a successful artist right now, uh, like a like a not necessarily like you, like a backing artist. Yeah. yeah. Um, you need to be on TikTok. Do you agree with that? I hundred percent agree with that. A couple weeks ago, or I guess more than a couple weeks ago now, maybe a month ago, um, I had uh, um, an artist, uh, Becca Hamill, on the podcast. She's a photographer and social social media content creator, a uh, great um, art director as well, creative director. And we spoke about, on this podcast, we spoke about how people and artists now aren't necessarily worried about people at the show, yeah. but they're now worried about the people at the next show yeah. in the sense that, like, how can we sell the experience now to get more artists, at uh, not more artists, more uh, audience, people, yeah. uh, more audience at the next show. Yeah. Um, so it's and it's all about social media. It's all about creating that experience and documenting it now, so that when you're in Toronto the next time, or Chicago, or New York, or LA, or whatever, the next time, there's people who are going to be envious that had FOMO last time. Yeah. That saw that video that you posted after that Chicago show, and want to enjoy that experience next time. Yeah. So I think it's all about social media again. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and uh, I like I don't feel good about that. No, me neither. It's, <laughs> it's the reality. Yeah. Um, something I try to advise emerging artists is try to blend like your live show and your social media. So like you know figure out how to capture natural content. Sure. But uh, that's not so easy. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And um, being authentic is now another thing too. Yeah. Uh, last week I spoke with Trent Hurst, who's. Uh, in marketing at Universal, and he, we were talking about the differences between manufactured promotion and authentic promotion, because now people on TikTok are now, like, the, the the content that's king is also just, like, camera facing you, and you talking to your audience, or doing random stuff in your kitchen, or yeah. doing, like, doing a road trip, or whatever, where, where it's not like, oh, I'm in the studio, we spent millions of dollars on this, on this Super Bowl budget, or whatever, those TikToks sort of hit harder than definitely than like um, like million dollar promotions, and we even saw it a couple weeks ago with um, Cardi B and um, her husband Offset, Offset, where they were just like at McDonald's 
and they were just like shooting on their iPhone, and that sort of became like the the ad of the week kind of thing. They were coming out of McDonald's with their with their burger bags or whatever, but it was obvious that w- it was shot on an iPhone, and it was the lowest production. But right. I'm still talking about it now. And they also made real commercials for that. Yeah, exactly. It's the like, you know, authentic social content, but. Yeah. The thing about that is uh, it's trial and error mm-hmm. um, is what I've seen for a lot of successful people on TikTok. Or, totally. Um, and you have to be willing to put a lot of stuff out there and see what works. And that's really uh, a grind and a slog. Yeah, yeah. And once you're slogging, it's hard to be authentic and, like, have fun. Yeah. Um, so this is, like, a skill. You know what I mean? Like, it's a skill... Uh, as much as playing an instrument is a skill. And uh, that's hard for a lot of musicians to wrap their minds around. And then they get upset that some people are more successful than they are where they're not as good at music, but they're better at TikTok. Right. And, like, that's an art form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, it kind of goes back to, like, the old question about, like, the Kardashians. Like, what are they good at? Right. Like, I remember this one interview with them... Maybe it was like Barbara Walters or something. It's like, you, you guys don't do anything. Right. You're famous for nothing. It's like, no, they're really good at marketing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, like, yeah. That's a skill. Yeah. yeah, like Kris Jenner has a master class. Do you know those master class yeah. videos? She has a master class on the, the, the rise of the Kardashians and that whole like empire because it really is an empire. And uh, mom, the mom is now teaching yeah, all a, about it. So it's so ma- wild. A marketing genius. Yeah, 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 exactly. And exactly. like, that's a legitimate skill. Like it's the, it's a, it's interdisciplinary between creative and business. I, uh, and like different communication strategies. Totally. And, uh, you know, people may not think it's the most, um, you know, like authentic thing yet. It's super successful. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, exactly. I'm not suggesting that emerging musicians should be the Kardashians, but it's like learning to um, operate on social media isn't as a skill. Yeah, yeah, and, and an art. Yeah, to go forward from that, what do you think is the future of of, of music industry past? Not necessarily social media, but what's next? Yeah, I I mean we were talking about that a little bit before, like what's after TikTok? Yeah, something, but yeah. I don't know what it is. Right. Um. You know, to be a little contrarian to what I was just saying, uh, making good music has not not gone out of fashion. Yeah, And so, like, the ways to uh, promote it and market it change. And, you know, the genres and sounds and maybe even instruments change. But, like, the creative impulse to make music uh, remains. Right. And so that's important. And uh, I think that's something that we can be happy about. Yeah. so, you know, the musical imperative remains the, uh, like, manifestation, promotion, and, uh, like, operas, opera, uh, like, operationalization of that right. uh, changes a lot and changes quickly. Um, so, yeah, you know, like, being passionate about music will leave you in good stead, although I would preface that with saying in a social manner, too. Mm-hmm. What is, what's, again, another question, what is lacking right now in the music industry? Mm. Um, That's a big question. question. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I won't, I won't lead, I won't kind of skew you one way or another, but I guess just your first instinct on that. 
Um, wow. You know, one thing I realize is there's a lot going on. Like, there's a lot of music. Right. And uh, I think even though there's more music than ever and it's more easy to record and distribute music than ever, uh, people are also very, very um, tied to, like, popular music. And we're seeing this right now with ticket prices being, like, extraordinarily high. Yeah. So I, I think that hopefully there's some way to, like, open up the music community and create more opportunities for people to engage in, like, all sorts of different music. Although that's kind of happening. I guess there's just, like... Making music, going to shows is expensive. Right. And uh, I hope there's some way to, like, create musical communities where people can join them and, uh, you know, feel like they're a part of a culture and a community um, all, like, all across the world. I, you know what? Yeah. That's not a great answer. I, I think that part of the issue is you always want to be like uh, a part of like an exclusive scene or something. Right. 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 And then when it opens up a little bit, like it becomes less cool. Right. So I don't know exactly what's lacking, but I know that um, like there's always going to be something next. uh, Right. And uh, like, that's what's lacking. It wasn't in my notes, but, do we want to talk about maybe your position at our house and what it sure. is as well? Um, I, I love to talk about to my guests about what their day to day is. Um, sure. Yeah. With their, with their job and with their work and stuff. So Art House is a pretty unique company. Uh, it was started by Serena Ryder and her longtime manager, uh, Sandy Pandia. Um, as Serena uh, wanted to start her own record label. And uh, so she and Sandy did that. And uh, so it has uh, a multifaceted business uh, strategy, which includes a record label, a management firm, um, publishing. There's a studio. We have two spaces in downtown Toronto, one with the studio and one event space, which is very close. It's uh, in the uh, near uh, Dundas West area. And then... um, they started the company right when the pandemic hit and there was a lot of recognition that artists were struggling uh, right. in terms of like their mental health yeah yeah uh, because they couldn't get out and be social uh, so they started running and this uh, at the same time uh, Serena released her album uh, The Art of Falling Apart which documents her mental wellness journey so they started running wellness workshops called the uh, Art of Wellness series. Okay. And these were online because uh, it was the pandemic. Right. And it, they were very successful. And it kind of uh, cascaded into uh, a community education, wellness, professional development side of the business, which was spun out into a not-for-profit called uh, Art House Community. Okay. And that's what I work on. Right. Uh, so we do a variety of different programs and events that focus on um, professional development for emerging musicians and other creative professionals, wellness for creatives, and also different education uh, programs. 
So we have a bunch of cool different programs. We still do the art of wellness, not online anymore, right? Because uh, no one wants to do that, right? <laughs> uh, so we have events at our space uh, where we have speakers, uh, we do performances, and um, networking where people can be social in like hopefully like a safe and um, fun environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, a variety of other programs that we run uh, with uh, different types of collaborators. I kind of uh, categorize them into two different sections. Uh, established industry collaborators and then emerging collaborators who are generally young people who have started collectives or groups that are looking to make uh, social impact. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we do like a bunch of events uh, yearly and... Uh, run a variety of programs. Uh, so that's been pretty good. Uh, we're running a program now called uh, Music for Social Change, which is a collaboration with a group called Conscious Economics, which are a really cool organization that work uh, at the intersection of business and creativity, trying to help creatives and other and business folks like get together right to create uh like strategic alliances yeah yeah that's Uh, cool so we're working with a bunch of artists who are also activists to help them grow their activism right and uh provide a platform for them to try to understand how their artistry their activism and their entrepreneurial spirit can come together and uh, grow into something that's sustainable over the long term. Cool. So that's an exciting program. Yeah. Uh, we run some other programs too. Uh, one in collaboration with Advance, which is uh, Canada's uh, Black Music Industry Professional Association, as well as Live Nation and uh, MLSE Launchpad, which is uh, m- the charitable side of MLSE. Yes. To bring uh, Black youth into a program to show them about all of the roles in the live music industry beyond the performer. Right. Um, right. So that's a really cool program. And that's a kind of immersive program where we have guest speakers from live nation who, you know, talk about what they do on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. We go to a show, uh, which has what the last one was, uh, the Jesse Reyes concert at history. Yeah. And show the participants, all the different, uh, like operational parts of running a live venue. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many. Like yeah. there's security, there's a front of house, there's back of house, there's lighting, there's yeah. uh, merch, uh, there's hospitality. Yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of like similar to the purpose of this podcast is to show uh, these particular participants are high school students. Yes, yeah. Um, that the live music industry is a potential career. It's a viable option. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's a cool program. That's really great. Uh, You know, we do uh, a lot of other things. It's fairly new. We've only been have, we've only had the nonprofit for about a year now. Right. And um, I guess this was kind of what I was talking about in terms of uh, what's needed in the music industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to find new forms of community engagement to involve people in creativity and the music business. Yeah. Yeah. in more substantial ways than just being a fan. Totally. And I think, I think like through the pandemic, we lost so many people, um, to more conventional jobs yeah. as well. So there's a big lack of human resources that are, are, are in the, in, are in the industry right now. Exactly. So please 
come on and work in uh, in the music industry. We need the people, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of work there. Um, Which is fun. a surprise to people. No, I know it's a, it's a big surprise because five years ago it wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to get more information on on Art House, it's uh, A R T H A U S Music. That's M U S I C dot com. Please, and go check that out. Yes, it acts as a management company as a as a label, but it uh, it also has Art House Community as well, which has which has a bunch of different programs. And we are back to conclude. I'd like to thank Noah Schwartz for being my guest on this week's episode. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, You're doing amazing work. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And this is an amazing platform to discuss uh, topics that I think are really important. Like, this is what I'm all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, honestly, like, it was great to speak to you about your book because we, had, we hadn't done that even individually yet. And to speak to you about uh, the whole, like, music industry from, um, again, musical, uh, technological, cultural, and, and, and historical aspects of it as well. And hearing about Art House as well. Um it, I, I love what y- y'all are doing there, and I think it's so great to be involving um, that those just different communities as well in in the music uh, industry, especially at a young age in high school as well. Um, so thank you, thank you for coming. Thank you for those who are listening. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, you know, it's great to 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 be interacting with with all of you um, on a weekly basis. Uh, we are here every week. Please keep keep it as as interactive as you have been in the past. Please ask, ask your questions. We're here for that uh, in the comments below, uh, on Instagram, everywhere else. Uh, thanks to Ace Creative for um, supporting us. And um, yeah, don't hesitate to sc- subscribe <laughs> to, to get the notifications on on the on the new uh, on the new content coming. Um, as always, stay safe, and we'll uh, see you next week. <laughs>